0: So my name is Ryan. I'm the student pastor here at Beach. I'm very excited to see all of you tonight. I'm very excited to be um, in this room talking about Jesus. So uh, what I want you to do is if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. We're not going to read it just yet, but uh, go ahead and put your finger there. It's in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 57, chapter 5, 7. Throughout, uh, throughout history, um, people have asked... Um, Difficult questions when it comes to suffering and God. And, uh, and I would say it's probably become more prevalent um, in the past few hundred years, especially as we get to know what's going on all around the world. There was a time um, where literally if it didn't happen in your community or within an, uh, maybe a mile of where you lived, you had no idea it even existed. You had no idea other people existed. You had no idea what was happening in other places. So if your little world was good, you thought the world was good, but now we live in a world through through social media and through the internet and through news um, where we find out what happens all around the world constantly. If there are people being killed in another city, we hear about it. If there are people um, being mistreated across the world, we hear about it. And so over the past few years, I would say especially this question, where is God in the suffering, has become such a prevalent question, such a question that... Um, that really just kind of takes over our thoughts when we think about God. Another, A few other ways that it's asked is, is this. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's been asked by non-Christians and Christians alike. No matter what your faith system is, people always ask, why do bad things happen to good people? People also say, if, if God's a loving father, then why does he allow evil? And these are serious questions. These are, these are tough questions and they say a lot about what we think about God. Remember at the beginning of Ruta, we talked about what we think about God is a very important thing about ourselves. And the truth is when we start to ask these questions of like, uh, where is God? How does God mix with suffering? A lot of times we come to one of two conclusions. One of two conclusions. One conclusion is that, well, God must not love us if he allows all this stuff to happen to us. That's one conclusion many people have come to. Another conclusion is, you may say, well, if God must love us, if, if he loves us and there's all this suffering, then maybe he just can't do anything about it. I would say both are equally difficult things to say and, and equally, um, equally bad perceptions of who God is because they both lead to us either believing in a God who doesn't care and doesn't love us or they lead to us believing in a God who has no power. And if, if God has no power, then what's the point? And so this question about suffering is is a difficult one. And there's many times we say, where is God? Even over the past few weeks and few years, um, we have seen so much in the news. Just this past week, for those of you who are into sports and if you're on any kind of social media, you saw a young 24-year-old professional athlete die in a boat accident. And this is a picture of, of the accident. His name was Jose Fernandez. And we see the way that it affects friends and family and people that knew him, how he leaves a wife behind who is pregnant with a baby, that, that is, that is well, how do we explain that? It's, it's just bad. It's suffering. We saw a few months ago in our own state 50 people mowed down by a deranged shooter in a nightclub and countless others injured. These are are serious things, and they're things that are kind of like, how can we we believe in God over here, and how can we have suffering like this in our own state, in our own backyard? Right now, many of you may not know this, but there's this word called genocide. Genocide is essentially what the Holocaust was, and, and genocide means that a group of people decides we are going to kill all other people of a different people group. Whether it's their religion or the way they look or the way they, they think, we are going to kill those people. That's what genocide is. So right now in Syria, there is um, a genocide going on where hundreds of thousands and millions of people are being murdered. And it's not just in Syria. It's also all throughout Africa. There's, there's, I don't know, like 8 to 10, 8 to 12 nations in Africa that have the exact same thing going on. They are in genocide emergencies where people are being forced out of homes. Look at this. This is their city and they're being forced out of their homes. They're being killed. They're being murdered in the streets in cold blood. How do we explain this? How can we, how can we believe in a God that allows this? These are, these are questions that come up. There's, there's poverty all over the world. And I'm not just talking about American poverty, which there is plenty of American poverty and plenty of people hurting and hungry. But all over the world, there is poverty like we cannot even imagine that makes even like Jamaica or the Caribbean look like, like, like nothing because people just have no food. They have no, no resources. They have no money. It is, it is bad. And we see sickness. It, I, would, I, would, I would wager that every single person in this room Has either known someone or been close to someone who has cancer, who has or has had cancer, right? I mean, maybe they passed away, maybe they were healed, but either way, we all have known people that are hurting and that are sick. And then, and then sometimes we think, well, that's just other places in the world. But the truth is, suffering is all around us. I've, I've had the privilege to, uh, to be involved in um, a couple of challenge days at, at local high schools over at Westside High School and, and here at Fletcher High School. And maybe some of you have been to it. If, if it ever comes to your school, I would highly recommend it. It's an amazing program. But challenge day, um, it's an opportunity where hundreds of students come together and they essentially talk about what's going on in their life. And, and being a witness to it, I've seen the suffering. In your lives and other students like you. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are. It doesn't matter whether you have two parents or one parent or no parents. It doesn't matter whether you um, have, have been a somewhat good person or you just kind of do whatever you want. It, it really doesn't matter. We all deal with suffering. There's this thing in Challenge Day called Cross the Line, and it's when they talk about different things that people are dealing with, and, and people essentially say, Yeah, that's me. And they step. Across the line. And you see students and adults with tears streaming down their face because they have had a parent or a close, close loved one put in prison for a long time. You see people stepping across the line because they have um, attempted suicide or a friend of theirs has committed suicide. You see people step al- across the line because they have addictions or those who love them and that they love have addictions. You see people cross, across the line for, for sexual abuse and physical abuse, emotional abuse. You see people cross the line because they've been mistreated by other people in that same room to the point where they, they think they are worthless. Suffering affects us all. That's the truth. Suffering is what it is. It, it's here. And, I, and maybe you can think about the times where you have suffered, the times where you have been upset, the times where you have felt hopeless. And if you take yourself back to those times, and maybe it's going on right now, you can, you can remember or you know the pain you have felt. The hopelessness you have felt. I've been blessed to live a, an amazing, amazing life. I, God has given me so many opportunities. God has given me so much. And yet, I've still dealt with plenty of suffering. And, and the point is not like me- measuring uh, suffering against each other. The point is that we have all dealt with some stuff. I mean, I've lost all my grandparents. One of my friends, um, maybe some of you remember on a mission trip a couple of years ago, I got a call from my dad and one of my friends had committed suicide and I sat there and I thought, well, how can I be in this other nation when I really, like telling people about Jesus and putting a smile on my face when I like feel hopeless and when I'm hurting so much? And again, the, it, suffering's not just death. Suffering is day to day when we are just struggling in, in this world. I remember moving here in high school, and I moved here in February of my sophomore year. So that's kind of a basically halfway through high school, but also halfway through the year. If any of you have gone to a new school halfway through a year, you know it, it really sucks. And, um, and, and I didn't know anybody. I wasn't used to this community. I, I, was in, I was in Tampa where I knew all my friends from elementary and middle school, like many of you uh, do now. You go to Fletcher High School, and you, you've been growing up with these kids your whole life. But I came here, and I didn't know anybody. And I remember going home and crying because I had no friends. And because I would go to lunch and I would maybe have one friend and if they weren't there, well, I guess I was just sitting alone that day. And I remember getting my, my license and being like, okay, well, now I can go off campus. It'll be okay. But I still remember days where I had no one to go with and I'd be like, well, I don't even know what to do. So I would drive as far away as I could to go to a restaurant where I wouldn't see anyone seeing me sit alone. And it was, it was tough. It sucked. Like, and many of you have dealt with these same things and it's just life sucks sometimes. And suffering is real, and we've all dealt with it. And so, when we talk about suffering, we have to, we kind of have to first talk about, when we're talking about God and suffering, we first have to discuss where does suffering come from? Because a lot of times, what we say is, well, God caused this. God made this happen. God hurt me. It's His fault. And what we have to do is, we have to go to Scripture and we have to go back to the very Beginning, and we go to the very beginning. We go to Genesis one. We see Adam and Eve being created, and God's creation looked like this. I'm going to live face to face with these two human beings. I'm going to give them dominion over everything. They're going to be able to hang out with like lions and tigers and just pet them and like lay and take naps with them. And this is going to be this is amazing. And they're like they, they had it all. They they could play with wild animals and it was great. And they they could uh, they, they didn't have to work. They didn't have to worry about money. They didn't have to worry about food. They didn't have to worry about anything. They were face to face with God. No suffering. No pain. No tears. No argument. It was perfection. And then we all know the story. Human beings decided that they knew better than God, and we still do it today. We think we know better than God. We say, uh, I know you've given me all this, God, but I'm going to choose this direction. And it's no clearer, there's no clearer time than in the garden when, when uh, Adam and Eve decided, you've given us everything, and yet we think you're holding out on us, and we are going to go on our own path. And very quickly after they made that decision, the world was stuck in chaos. Their own son killed his brother. That's how quickly sin led to death. That's how quickly sin led to destruction and led to suffering. And the truth is, the real truth is, God does not cause suffering. God doesn't cause suffering suffering. And if, you were, if, you're, if you're taking notes, I would put out into the parentheses, we do. We cause suffering. Now, before you get all offended and say, well, I didn't, I didn't cause this and I didn't cause that, the truth is human beings are the reason why human beings are in this situation. That was not how God intended the world to be. And if you want proof of it, I want you to think about this. How many times have you thought of something in your head you should do that you knew you ought to do, that you knew was the right thing to do, and you decided to do something else. We've all done it, right? We've all done the opposite of what we knew we should have done. And if, if we don't even do what we ought to do, what we know what we ought to do, then how can we expect the other 7.5 billion people in this planet Earth to do what they ought to do? See, the truth is, suffering has all come from the sin within us. It's 7.5 billion people doing what they want to do when they want to do it, getting selfish, being prideful, hurting others to get to it. You want to prove it? Think about any war. If you, if you think about any war, I'll show you a group of people who decided we want something and we're going to take it. Or someone hurt us and we're going to get revenge go to any kind of uh, mistreatment of human beings, go to sex trafficking, go to drugs. It's people saying, I want money, so I will sell substance. I will sell people because so, I want what I want to want. I want what I want. Like that's, I'm going to get what I want. I want you to think about bullying within schools. What happens? It's someone saying, I care more about myself than someone else, so I'm going to mistreat this other person. I'm going to tell them they are such and such because I feel bad about myself or I am having a bad day, so I'm just going to treat someone else poorly. We think about any type of sexual abuse or physical abuse. It's someone saying, my feelings are more important than you, so I'm just going to hurt you. And when you have 7.5 billion people doing their own thing, suffering happens. Wars happen. Mistreatment happens. Poverty happens. Poverty happens. So the truth is, God doesn't cause suffering. We do. So, so if we know where it comes from, if we know where it comes from, we still have to deal with the fact that it's right here in front of us, right? We have to deal with the fact that there is suffering all around us, and we have to decide how we are going to respond. And so that leads us to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. We have a young man here, not much older than many of you, named David. David. You know him as King David, and Psalm 57 is a writing that he writes in about uh, 1050 B.C. So this is about 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And in Psalm 57, the context of what's going on is, is, is Saul, or David is in a terrible situation. He is suffering. I want you to think about the biggest suffering you've ever been, to, been through, and, and this is probably at least up there, if not worse. He has been told by God, you're going to be the king, and yet he has to wait. And he spends time doubting, God. Are are you really going to make me king, God? Are you really going to give me what I want? Because I don't see it right now. What's happening in this situation is that David, David has has served the king, King Saul, for for a number of years, and actually, King Saul is his best friend's father. His best friend in the world, Jonathan, his dad is King Saul. And so he's like a family member to him. And now King Saul has gotten mad at David and he's decided he is going to be a wanted man. He has put out a warrant for his arrest and he is chasing him around Israel. He has told all the news stations, this guy's a terrible person. He's told everybody lies about David. And so David's in the middle of being betrayed by someone he loves. He's in the middle of being chased around a desert and he ends up in a cave in the middle of the desert with a few of his friends, with no food, with no nothing, being chased literally by 3,000 soldiers. And that is the situation we find him in in Psalm 57. He is in the middle of immense suffering. And so we read how he reacts to suffering. Here we go. Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. This, this idea of the shadow of his wings is like a uh, a, a Baby bird being underneath the protective wings of the mother bird. And so um, David is is, is, is saying, I just want to be in the refuge of the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. That doesn't look like a, a very different prayer than many of us that we've prayed when we're going through something. But then he says this, I cry out to God, most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and faithfulness. Now wait a second, that looks a little bit different than a lot of our prayers when we're suffering. Why is he calling God loving and faithful when God has betrayed him? God has told him, you're going to be the king, and now God has put him in a situation, at least in his eyes, God has put him in a situation where he is alone, and he is in suffering, and he is being chased around. You see, David reacted to suffering in a way that is far different than many of us. He continued to call God loving and faithful even in the midst of his suffering. He didn't blame God. He knew God was his only hope. We continue in verse 4. He says, I'm in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. So he's in the middle of being chased around by all these soldiers, who are like chasing him like a, like a beast hunts its prey. And then he says this in verse five. It, it kind of seems completely out of place. You would have thought at this point, maybe he would just keep complaining. Maybe he would say, oh God, help me, help me, help me. This is what he says. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In the midst of his suffering, what does David care about? Does he care about his own problems? Yes, but... It's not the most important thing. What does he say is the most important thing? God's glory to be over all the earth. He cared more about God's plan and God's glory than he cared about his own problems being solved. And then he continues in verse six. He says, they spread out a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. And then he says this, my heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. This word for steadfast is the word coon, and this word coon means to be ready, to be established, to be prepared. So he says, I'm in this terrible situation, and yet I am steadfast. I am ready. I am prepared. I am stable. It reminds us of another writer, a thousand years later, or maybe 1,500 years later, who would say, you, Jesus, you, God, are like an anchor in the midst of a storm, If you don't believe in the Bible, just look at the difference between writers who didn't know each other, who didn't live in the same time period, who say the exact same things. He says, I'll be steadfast. I'm I'm established in you. And then later, the New Testament writer would say, you are my anchor through a storm. Nothing can tear me down. Even Jesus himself would say, what do you build your house upon? You build it upon the... The rock, and you will be safe when all the storms of life come on you. All the suffering in the world comes upon you. You will be secure. And so he says, I am steadfast in you. And then we continue and finish off the psalm. He starts getting excited. He starts praising God. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of your love among the people. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the sky. Be exalted, O God. He repeats himself above the heavens. Let your glory, not David's glory, not his own glory, let your glory, God, be over all the earth. What he does here is he starts praising God in the midst of a pit, in the midst of suffering. So maybe that's something that someone in here needs to hear. Some person that's following Jesus and just says, and just is complaining and is stuck in the pit. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care for you. I'm not saying that your problem doesn't matter. I'm just saying you have two choices. You can either stay in the pit or you can praise your way out of it. You can praise God until he lifts you out of the pit. You can praise him through the storm. You can praise him and allow him to be your rock. Because David teaches us a very important truth, and it is this. Because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we can have hope in the middle of suffering. Because of Jesus, we can have hope in the middle of suffering. And in the midst of everything David was going through, he knew that this was the truth. He didn't say, where does the suffering come from? He didn't say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've been chosen to suffer. He realized suffering just exists. But because of God, because of Jesus, I can have hope. So let's fast forward about 400 years, 450 years, to a few young men in the chapter, or in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. These young men um, were known as... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and you may not know them by those names, but you probably know them by the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The reason why their names were different was because when they were teenagers, when they were young boys, younger than some of you or around the same age, they were lifted up out of their home. Imagine in the middle of the night, someone tearing you out of your home, killing your parents, killing all your family, and taking you to another nation, and then making you a servant or a slave. That was their situation. Their life sucked. Their, their existence was suffering. They couldn't even keep their names. They changed their names for them. They made them speak a new language. They made them eat new foods, and they made them worship different gods. And essentially, these guys were, were, were like the, the rock stars of the kingdom, and, and the king couldn't really find fault in them. So, so basically, people hated them. And so uh, there, there's this there's this, um, there's this this, this large uh, monument set up for the king. And, and they make this rule that if anyone doesn't bow down to it, they will be thrown into a furnace. They will be killed. And many of you know this story if you grew up in church or you grew up uh, in Sunday school or something like that. But in chapter 3, we pick up in verse 13 and we see what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have not bowed down to the, to the king's uh, 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 statue of gold. And so this is what happens. It says, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with rage and he summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you would not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? And he says, now when you hear the sound of music, he says all these different instruments. He said, if you're ready to fall down, if you're ready to change your mind, very good. But if you do not worship the image I made, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Listen to him. Listen to his pride. Uh, what's your God going to do when King Nebuchadnezzar kills you? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves. We, we don't answer to you. You're just some guy. You're just some king. We only answer to God. And in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of a terrible situation, this is what they say. If we are thrown into the furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And He will. Deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, this is kind of weird. They say God can do it. God is going to do it. But if he doesn't do it, here's what they say. We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And so Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. He tells them to turn up the furnace hotter. He tells them to tie them up and take them up to it and throw them down into the furnace. The furnace is so hot... That the guards who throw them in are killed by the flames coming up out of the furnace. And they throw them down into this furnace. And then we pick up in chapter, or in verse 24, it says this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. And he asks his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Weren't there three? And they're all like, yeah, yeah, whatever you say, whatever you say. Just don't throw us into the fire. Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly, Your Majesty. Uh, yeah, 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 you, you did that. It was three people. That's what's in there. And he says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, no longer tied up, and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, who does that sound like? Who does the son of the gods sound like? He sees this man 600 years before Jesus 600 years before Jesus, he speaks of a man like Jesus. And we see God in the pit, in the suffering, in the fire with these men. And these men knew the same thing that David knew six hundred or 400 years before them, that God gives us hope in the middle of suffering. Last place I want to turn to, and you don't even have to turn there, it's 1 Peter at the end of the Bible, 1 Peter 5. Verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Let me see if I can find it. There we are. Peter says this. Peter, a man that suffered, a man that um, was ultimately killed for his Savior. He says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Not when you want. Not when you think it's time. But in due time, in God's time, he will lift you up. And then he says this. It's kind of like in the meantime, until he does, he says this in chapter 7, or verse 7. Cast all your anxiety, all your suffering, all your troubles, all your problems, all your, 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 your situations that you cannot control and that you hate. Cast it all upon him, for he cares for you. For he cares For you. The band's gonna come back up. And here's what I want you to hear. When he says, cast all your problems upon God, cast them all upon God. That word for cast literally means to throw. So here's what Peter is in fact saying about your suffering in this world. He's saying, Jesus, Jesus will give you hope. Jesus will give you hope. Jesus will be with you in the fire. But then he says this He says, throw your problems on Jesus. That's not, this isn't like Bible speak for, oh, give your problems, get out on the altar and give your problems up to God. No, he says, throw your problems on Jesus. Throw them upon him. Take that junk in your life. Take the suffering. Take the death. Take the, the problems, the addictions, the bad relationships, the people that have hurt you. I want you to take that all, Peter says, and I want you to throw it on Jesus. You may say, well, that sounds unfair. Well, unfair is exactly what it is. Unfair is exactly what it is to throw your problems on Jesus. In the Old Testament, there was, um, there was a, a sacrifice system. Many of you know this, and don't miss this. Don't miss it. This. this is so important. They, they had this system where at the end of the year, on the Day of Atonement, they would um, basically ask forgiveness for all the sins that had been committed by all the people in Israel. And then they would say, okay, well, we did this on purpose. We shouldn't have done this. And then they would say, well, there are some things that I think we accidentally did. And, and, uh, and we're sorry for those things. We can't even think of them all. And what they would do is the, the priest would take a perfect goat. And he would basically, kind of through prayer, cast all of the sins of the people onto this goat. And then what he would do is he would say, We cannot keep this sin here. We cannot keep this this trouble here and this suffering here. Let us send it out into the wilderness. And they would just let it go away from the city until it would ultimately just leave and probably die in the wilderness. And they called this a scapegoat. Many of you have heard of this term, a scapegoat. And and, and that's where it comes from. It's uh, like... Um, a scapegoat in sports is if someone missed the last shot of the game, everybody blames them even though it wasn't all their fault, but they blame it on them. They are the scapegoat. And this is where this originally came from. In the Hebrew culture, they would have a scapegoat and they would say, all of our problems, all of our suffering, all of our sin is on you. Leave us and go away. They would cast or throw their problems and their sins on this goat. And Jesus is the scapegoat. Jesus is the scapegoat. That is what the gospel says. The gospel says that Jesus took on our suffering. Jesus took on our sin. Jesus took on the things that you did last Friday. Jesus took on the things that you did yesterday. Jesus took on the bad relationships. Jesus took on the problems. Jesus took on the war. Jesus took on the abuse. Jesus took on your addictions. Jesus took on your selfishness. Jesus took on your pride. Jesus took on all suffering ever in the history of the world and he went out of the city, like the scapegoat, out of the city... Outside of the city with a cross on his back and was killed outside of the city for the sins of us all. He was the eternal scapegoat. And so when Peter tells us, cast, throw all your suffering, all your burdens, all your anxiety, all your problems on him. That is, that's what he's saying. He's, he's saying, let Jesus be your scapegoat. Let him take on the suffering. He doesn't try to say your life's going to be perfect. He doesn't say your life's going to be all better if you just give your life to Christ, because that's not the truth. The truth is that he just says cast your problems, throw your problems down on Jesus, and let him be your scapegoat. And I want to close with, with, uh, with Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. And this is actually the the, the message version um, of the verse, one of my favorite versions of this verse, He said, Jesus says to people, he says, are you tired? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Many of you think, oh, I thought that's what we were doing here, religion. No. He says, are you burned out on religion, on trying to do everything right, on trying to be perfect? He says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Doesn't that sound nice? Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Many of you have never known of an unforced relationship with God. All you know is, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. And Jesus says, it's unforced. Just follow me. Walk with me. Put your burdens on me. Cast your anxiety on me. Cast your troubles and your worry on me. He says, it's not fair. I'll take on the suffering. The suffering's real, but I'm gonna take on it for you. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Again, suffering doesn't come from God, but he will take on our suffering. We may have dug this pit that we are in, but he will take on it for us. He says, keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You'll learn to live freely and lightly. And so this is how I want to close. I want you to all um, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to give you the opportunity. Many of you um, have never um, known of a religion uh, or, or, or some type of faith where you can live freely and you can cast your suffering on someone else. You've never heard of a scapegoat like Jesus. You've heard of Jesus, but you've never heard that he is your scapegoat that would take on the sins of of you, and take on your bad problems, whether you caused them or whether someone else caused them, whether it was your parents, or whether it was your nation, or whether it was your skin color, or whether it was, was, was um, a teacher, or whether it was a coach, or whether it was someone that mistreated you as a child, he would take on all of that, go outside of the city, and sacrifice himself for it. You don't know that God, and if you don't know that Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to come to know him, to come to know him. So, we are going to pray together. And it's not my special prayer um, that is going to save you. It is is that you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is Lord, and you confess with your mouth that you want to be in a relationship with Him. If that's you, if you want to enter into a relationship with the scapegoat who will take on everything for you, who won't give you a perfect life, who won't fix everything, but will take on your problems and carry them away, I want to introduce you to Jesus. If you've never given your life to him, I want you on the count of three to raise your hand and you can pray this prayer with me. And all it takes is your decision. No one else can make it for you, your decision to do it. And so I'm going to count to three. You raise your hand and you put it back down. And it's that physical step saying, I surrender my life to the scapegoat, to Jesus who has died for me. I want to put my suffering on him. And then you pray this prayer with me. One, God loves you. Two, you'll never be the same. He wants to take on your suffering. Three, raise your hand. Raise your hand if that's you. Raise your hand. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I'm yours. I know I'm messed up. I know this world is messed up. And it's not fair. But I want to turn my life over to you. I want to surrender myself to you. Lord, I know you're the son of God. I know you died for me. Be the savior of my life. I want to walk with you. I want to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.